This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It's October, which might make you think of pumpkins, corn mazes, apples, all things that come from farms. And let's be honest, the Midwest is known for farms. About 75% of land in Illinois is farmland. We're the second largest exporter of soybeans in the country. And yes, corn is a big deal here. But here's the thing, our usual agricultural practices that we used to grow food is also hurting our ability to grow food now, and will get worse down the road. So here to tell us more is Illinois state climatologist Trent Ford. Hi, Trent. Welcome back. Hey, Sasha. Good to be on. My first question, Trent, what? Explain, how (laughs) is our current food system hurting our ability to grow food? Is it because of climate change? Well, climate change is part of it, um, and so, you know, what, what we've what we've seen is that there's a, a complex and kind of a two-way relationship between climate change and agriculture in the Midwest, and then we can broaden it out beyond the Midwest, but focusing here on the Midwest, especially corn and beans agriculture, um, and you know, the when we look out on the Midwest landscape, we we see. Um, the majority of that agricultural land is being used for one or two different crops that are produced in in sort of the same way and and what that does is it is it not only creates problems with environmental issues but also makes it a lot easier more vulnerable to climate related impacts and a lot of times you think about climate related impacts like really heavy rain high temperatures things like that but the overall shift in our climate in Illinois from warmer to and wetter um, also means an increase in agricultural pests, weeds, things like that, that also cause problems. And so at the same time that we've built up this um, agricultural system, really over the last, say, 70 years, uh, it's, it's made that agricultural system kind of paradoxically more, more vulnerable to climate change. How big of an impact on climate change does agriculture have? Help us understand. Yeah, so when we think about the main driver of climate change is is global warming, the increase in global average temperatures, and that's directly caused by human activities and the release of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide being the main one. Now, the sort of best uh, inventory uh, of greenhouse gas emissions for the country uh, puts agriculture at about 10 to maybe 15 percent of the total greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, now, the, the, the issue is, is that, um, you know, if, for example, uh, someone were to grow corn in Illinois and then put that on a train and ship it down to Galveston, Texas, is that greenhouse gas emissions from that train from transportation or agriculture. So there's, there's a bit of wiggle room mm, there, which okay. is why I say like 10 to 15 percent, but that's kind of what we, what, what we think of as, as the overall contribution to the actual driving of climate change. Globally, you know, we, we think about deforestation for farmland as a, a big contributor to this warming planet. So what do we see here in Illinois and why is this a problem? Yeah, so in Illinois, you know, historically, the, the, the land use change for agriculture really to shift away from prairie and, and kind of mixed uh, uh, savanna landscape and wetland landscape to agriculture that took place really about you know 100 or more years ago and we we have seen the expansion of agricultural lands across Illinois over the last 30 to 50 years uh, but the major expansion was really from you know prior to the 1950s um, but but certainly on a, on a global scale and, and just in, within the United States as well um, we've seen the development of of lots of different types of lands, but wetlands and and really important tropical rainforests in particular in some of our tropical areas into either grazing land for cattle or uh, agricultural land, row you know, crop agriculture for, let's say, corn or soybeans or other crops like palm oil mm-hmm. um, that, that does take away 
the it has ecosystem impacts for sure, but it also takes away or reduces the ability of that landscape to take in carbon dioxide. So a lot of times historically, the landscape has acted, the land has acted as a sink for the carbon dioxide that we emit into the atmosphere, and that transition from those tropical rainforests or wetlands to agricultural land reduces dramatically reduces the amount of of the effectiveness of that of that kind of carbon storage. Yeah, you mentioned cattle there. You know, livestock is a big part of Illinois' agricultural industry. So, talk more about that, how it plays out here, and how it stresses the climate. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a couple different ways with livestock management. It, it, livestock production. Um, that is that is really unsustainable, uh, as in livestock production on lands that are not really set up and water infrastructure that's not set up for massive uh, animal production. That can really, really tax um, local ecosystems, water quality, but also um, the, the production at livestock does uh, emit quite a bit of greenhouse gases. Yeah. And so a lot of times, you know, when we think about um, – you know what what people prescribe for lifestyle changes uh, that are related to a, a quote unquote climate friendly lifestyle. One of the first ones that people bring up is is eating a plant based diet or eating less meat. Now I don't I don't prescribe lifestyles for people, but the the reason that that is one of the the kind of uh, solutions or strategies that's pointed at often is because the the production of meat, especially um, cattle, uh, bison, sheep, and lamb, the, the, those are the ones that are the big um, uh, greenhouse gas emitters, it's associated with emissions of greenhouse gas, which have been, of course, affect climate change. The other big player here, soil and nutrient management. How do fertilizers play a a role in emissions? Yeah, so that we do have greenhouse gas emissions directly off of fertilizers that are applied to fields. Um, But uh, I would say one of the largest impacts is is not directly to climate change, but is actually a result of climate change in itself and of of maybe unsustainable um, nutrient management. And so one of the big issues we get is because rainfall across the Midwest is becoming heavier, we're getting more frequent, intense rainfall events. What that's doing is when that falls on a soil that has had nitrogen fertilizer or manure applied to it, especially in excessive rates, some of that nutrients can run off with the water that runs off the field. Because we get, let's say, a two or three inch rainfall event in just a number of hours, as we've seen in Chicago Mm -hmm. uh, over the last couple months, a lot of that will just run off and create flooding issues and inundation. And it's not just the water running off the field, but it's the nutrients that were applied to the field as well as the soil, which, of course, is the lifeblood of, of agriculture here in the Midwest. When that runs into our streams, our ponds, our lakes, eventually yeah. out into the Mississippi River and out into the Gulf of Mexico, not only are those nutrients that the farmer paid for are, are out of the Midwest or are not uh, actually going into the crop and helping with yield, uh, but it also creates a water quality problem. And, and we've seen that all across the Midwest with some uh, issues with surface water quality yeah. that are re- uh, linked to increased precipitation uh, intensity uh, and nutrient runoff. Let's bring another voice into this conversation. Liz Moran-Stelk is executive director of the Illinois Stewardship Alliance that brings together farmers and eaters to create a more just food system. Welcome to Reset, Liz. Uh, thanks, Sasha. How did we get here, Liz? I know you've been listening along. Talk to us about how farming practices change after World yeah. War II. Um, Trent really nailed it. It um, really started about 70 years ago. Um, how we got the food and farm system that we have today really starts after World War II. You know, we discovered that synthetic nitrogen that had been used to manufacture like explosives in the war was also a really powerful fertilizer for crops, and it was cheap to produce. So 
the millions of small, diverse farms around the country who are using livestock to fertilize and till their crops and then sell the meat no longer needed the animals. And raising livestock is really hard work. Yeah. <laughs> so farms started growing grains using these cheap synthetic fertilizers like corn and beans through the Midwest, and animals were moved into huge like, factory farms. And so once crops and livestock were separated, farms got really specialized and started monocropping and grew larger and larger. And at the time, we had really strong farm bill, like after the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, that helped manage the supply of food so farmers wouldn't overproduce and cause the prices to plummet. But that all changed in the 70s when um, the Secretary of Ag under Nixon, Earl Butts, he believed that we could feed the world cheaply if farmers would just plant fence row to fence row, and he wasn't concerned about overproduction because we could just export it. And this was really great for food manufacturers who love cheap ingredients to make convenience food for the middle class. But um, So he ended the, the supply management and sort of ushered in an era of, like, get big or get out in farming. And so millions of Midwest farmers did just that, and it yeah. was a big windfall for big ag and food. And they, at the time, like used their power to carve out exceptions for agriculture and some of our most important environmental protection laws, like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, that other polluting industries have to comply with. Yeah. Trent, talk more about that. As as Liz mentioned, you know, we're, we're growing two big cash crops, almost exclusively corn and soybeans, right, which aren't actually going directly to our plates and bellies. And I know that we actually import a lot of our food. So how do droughts, for instance, in California and the Southwest, how does that impact the food supply? That Yeah, that's, there's a lot wrapped in that question. It's really complex because you're right that we, the majority of, of the agricultural land used to grow uh, kind of the seed or feed corn, seed corn, or soybeans don't directly end up on our plate. They're either used, as you mentioned, for fuel, um, or they're used to, to feed animals, which then do indirectly end up on our plate. So um, the the other kinds of bits of our of our diet, vegetables, fruits, other types of grains that we mill into breads and things like that, those are, are are somewhat grown in Illinois, but a lot of them are imported from places like California and Texas and Florida. Uh, well, as you mentioned, um, as we've seen the climate transform in the Midwest, we've also seen it in other places like California. And they are undergoing a significant drought right now, but there's there are arguments that what the West is also experiencing is aridification. And so these kind of water use issues that and sometimes pit agriculture against communities um, out in the West are not something that is likely to going to go away in the next couple of decades in, in California. So there, it brings up a big question of, you know, if the need for food production, actual food production, especially fruits and vegetables and livestock, um, if that can't be done sustainably uh, or even at all in places like uh, the Central Valley or in parts of Arizona, uh, how, how are those, how is that demand going to be met? Yeah. And uh, there are some that are arguing that, you know, the Midwest agriculture can be transformed to sort of meet that, that food demand. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about the effect that the agricultural industry has on climate change and in turn, the ways that a warming climate impacts the ability of farmers to grow food. Trent Ford is Illinois state climatologist and Liz Moran Stelk is the executive director of the Illinois Stewardship Alliance. Now, we're bringing in one more voice to the conversation. Andy Hazard is owner operator of Hazard Free Farm and Grains in Pecatonica. Welcome, Andy. I'm really glad to be here. 
Trent, let me kick things off with you here in this this section. I want to make clear climate change isn't just something that's going to affect farmers in the future, right? Because it's happening now in Illinois, and it's not just happening out west. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've seen already seen impacts related to climate change and agriculture in Illinois. I mean, the big one that I'd mentioned before was increasing rainfall intensity. But we're also seeing an increase in the frequency of very wet springs, which really upsets the, the very important spring kind of management and planning, uh, including planting of our annual crops, changes in winter temperatures that are affecting when apple, peach, uh, berry, shrubs, uh, uh, flower, and, and uh, the risk of spring freeze to those things. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the, the kind of um, issues with a warmer overall climate, wetter overall climate, bringing pest disease um, and really challenging our integrated pest management. So all of that is being felt here in Illinois. Yeah. And, and, and as you mentioned, climate change is here. It's not something that's in the future, uh, just in the future. But, but those, those issues that I just talked about of climate change in Illinois are projected to intensify mm-hmm. um, over the next couple of decades. So, Andy, let's hear from you. How have you been impacted by climate change, especially on the day to day? Um, yes, what Trent was saying about the we we talk about windows of planting in the spring, and typically farmers would plant in March. We plant oats, wheat, barley, you know those types of crops. We can't get into the field; it's too wet, and that has just been a huge problem. Not only that, as an organic or sustainable farmer, we may may be making multiple passes over that field. You might have to plow it, disc several times, mm-hmm. drag it you know, then plant, then roll. There's all these oil and gas going into it. And so for me, I've been moving into underseeding clover when I plant my grain. And that way I'm not worrying about weeding. When the grain comes off, I'm fixing nitrogen for the rest of the summer. I could graze animals on it. I can make hay, mm-hmm. heavy rain event, no runoff. You know, it's kind of, it's actually working really well. Liz, does this track with what you're hearing from other farmers? What are you hearing from them? Yeah, um, we're you know hearing that um, farmers are impacted. Everything that that you know Trent mentioned earlier, it's you know rainfall events that are unexpected or longer periods of drought. We also have you know farmers who tell us they have pest pressure they've never witnessed before. Trent, we, we've touched on rainfall there, but what about warmer night temperatures? Yeah, this is an issue for both row crops, the kind of grains, as well as what we consider or is often called specialty crops, things like tomatoes and pumpkins and sweet corn that are often, you know, a really, really important part of Illinois' agriculture. Um, and, and uh, you know, summertime temperatures overall have warmed not quite to the extent of wintertime temperatures, but when we break it down between day and night, our summer nighttime temperatures have warmed at about three to four times the rate of our summer daytime temperatures. So we're getting a lot more of those very warm nights where our temperature doesn't get below maybe 65, 70, in some cases, 75 degrees. And just as that's stressful to humans, when you can't open your windows and relax at night after a hot day, it's mm-hmm. stressful for plants as well. So some of the, major, the specific impacts we see is reduced sugar conversion in corn that can have a significant impact on yield, even without like a drought or or moisture uh, restriction. Uh, Increased abortion of flowers in tomato plants. And of course, the fewer flowers, generally speaking, the lower quality of the fruit that is produced. So um, these are the the overall temperature change has impacts, but the warmer nights, which is a really significant trend we've seen in Illinois over the last 50 years or so, definitely has those impacts as well. How do the warming temperatures affect swine? Well, that, that's another thing. Livestock, you know, um, a lot of times, especially more confined operations, uh, uh, 
they, they depend on uh, evaporative cooling systems, so essentially using water. Just as our, our perspiration uh, cools us automatically as we sweat, um, a lot of most uh, domestic animals can't sweat, and so they're sprayed mm-hmm. down with water. Uh, evaporation pulls uh, the, the, the heat away from them, cools their body temperature down. The problem is, is that as those warm nights are increasing, the main cause of that is increasing humidity. And as humidity increases in the summertime, the effectiveness of those evaporative cooling systems decrease. And so what happens is you have confined swine or equine bovine operations. You're not able to cool those animals down as effectively, and we can see some really significant um, you know, livestock health impacts from that. Andy, talk more about what that's looked like, because you're, you're raising pigs outside as well, right? Yeah. Well, and I would say two things. On the crop effect, uh, I deal in heirloom corn and wheat, and I just save my own seed because I'm dealing with heirlooms. So they are adapting, and that way I know every year I'm planting a seed that is more adapted to my farming, my land, and our specific weather here in northern Illinois. In terms of the animals, because... We're doing cover cropping and we're, we're, you know, one of our challenges is fencing. It's all been ripped out. And so we need to put the fencing back so we can have the animals outside. And yes, this, this issue with animals dying in droves because of heat is not going to go away. It's only going to get worse. So our animals are outside, you know, and we do. We make pig ponds so that the pigs have a place to go and cool off mm-hmm. and the cattle have shade from trees. And those trees are maybe fruit producing or they may be wood producing or whatever, biofuel. You know, all the pieces can fit together um, when we look at a whole farm picture. Yeah. Uh, increasing winter temperatures, uh, that leads to non-native and invasive species having a more hospitable environment. Trent, can you just quickly explain that? Yeah, so the the kind of background warming, a lot of times the winter is our big determinant of what animals and um, and, and plants can live in Illinois, can thrive in Illinois. And because wintertime temperatures are increasing so so rapidly relative to other seasons, what we're seeing is an, is an increase in invasive or non-native species. There's, there's a lot made about uh, a species such as kopi or um, the, the fish in the Illinois River or armadillos, which have been found in, in higher frequency in southern Illinois. But, of course, that applies to, to agriculture culture insect pests um, as well as as weeds um, and and so <clears throat> as winters continue to warm it's likely we're going to see more uh, pressure from uh, either new or, or or already existing but more viable insect pests and weeds because of that still to come it's not all doom and gloom we're going to talk about solutions with our guests Trent Ford Liz Moran Stelk and Andy Hazard This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Before the break, we laid out how agricultural practices contribute to climate change and how a warming climate harms farmers, their ability to grow food. But there are ways around this cycle. Here to discuss is Trent Ford, Illinois state climatologist, Liz Moran-Stelk, executive director of the Illinois Stewardship Alliance, and Andy Hazard of Hazard Free Grain Farm. That's near Rockford, Illinois. Liz, uh, you get excited about how agriculture can be a solution to climate change. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, it's so exciting that, um, you know, farmers who are practicing agriculture in a, in a way that is what we would call regenerative can actually return, can actually store carbon in the soil, out, suck it out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, we can continue to burn fossil fuels 
in the way that we are, we have to change, um, we have to stop extracting fossil fuels, but um, we can support a just transition for farmers to do these system of practices that builds really healthy soils. Andy, your your family's been farming conventionally for, for generations, but you actually chose to farm differently. Why is that? I think it was a lot of things. I think a lot of people in rural areas wanted to stay on the farm, but we've been pushed off, as, as Liz was saying, um, you know, farm fence row to fence row. And, um, you know, it comes down to kind of marginalized uh, in rural communities have been extracted from and, and polluted. And in all that, people got pushed off the land into the cities. And so ultimately, there wasn't really room on the farm. And I kind of carved out my own corner, starting with vegetables and then have expanded into grain because there was interest in my family in exploring food grade grain and value added products. And so I was able to come back into the operation in that way. I imagine that um, this isn't an easy thing to do. Can you talk about the difficulties? Yeah, I mean, there are many difficulties, but I will say this. It is incredibly exciting time if you are in this arena because there's no going back. I mean, we cannot continue to go the way we were. And we have most of the answers. Now, you know, some would argue which answers are those. And I joke like, oh, are you, you know, who's in charge, man or nature? And for me, it was pretty obvious early on in college that nature was in charge, but not everybody agrees with that. Yeah. But that was sort of my thing is like, she's been doing it for billions of years. We just look and then copy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, and I think our biggest thing is understanding how quickly with the temperatures are moving, we need to be moving plants and seeds around to match the temperatures and match the challenges. And I think that's something that we kind of have yet to explore. But in the work that my farm does with saving our own seed, I feel like that's a really big piece of the of the part that will help us get through this. I'm curious how your communities responded to your choice to farm this way. Wonderfully, wonderfully, because really in a lot of ways, I'm farming in the old way. I'm using a lot of small, lighter equipment and um, have built wonderful relationships. I grew up as a 4-H kid. Um, You know, I work with 4-H, FFA, Extension, Everybody can see it, even people that might not fully understand climate change. If they watch birds and flowers, they'll say, yeah, they're coming at a different time. Or, oh, we had a really late frost and it killed the tops of all the sycamore trees. They see it, but, you know, people don't, we don't have a continuing education program in our country that's for the masses. And so I think a lot of people are just kind of head down working, providing for their family, and they don't realize how much more we know at this point in time. Well, Liz, you are working with farmers who have actually cited health concerns for their reason for switching away from from the conventional practices. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, some of our, uh, you know, farmer members talk about how, um, you know, they're deeply concerned about what they have seen about uh, from, you know, glyphosate, and, you know, other fertilizers and the, the impact that 
you know, what they're seeing is like cancers and other, you know, health impacts on themselves and members of their family and, you know, trace the roots of that to the use of chemicals and make a commitment that they're going to farm differently without those synthetic inputs and, um, you know, work more with nature to to feed healthy soil. Mm -hmm. You know, Andy, all of the things that we mentioned earlier, right, we talked about warmer winters, wetter soil, uh, compressing workflow in the spring. Tell us more about how you're working around this and how you're going about fall planting. Well, you know, interestingly, I just planted rye the other day and um, just on a few acres. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, just gave my father a heart attack because he really wanted to plow it. And we have been struggling. We do struggle with weeds, and Canadian thistle is one of them. But when you shift your mindset and you start talking to the weeds and you say, like, why are you here? <laughs> and you start looking into it further, the the plants say, well, I'm here because your calcium is low, you've compacted your soil, you have a plow pan, and because you weren't planting, you know, uh, cover crops under your grains. And nature is... I always like to think of her, she's like kind of a wild girl, but she wants to be covered. (laughs) She wants something on her soil surface. And when we don't do that, she'll do it for us and she'll bring in quote unquote weeds. Well, what those are is successional species to help return the balance because we're leaving a scar in the surface of the earth when we plow or when we work. Every time you work the soil, it's oxidizing, it's releasing carbon. So the less we can do that, and and figure out other ways, other types of low-impact equipment that are just, you know, working the very top few inches. We are keeping that carbon in the soil. And this kind of, it kind of comes back into why aren't the carbon markets operational yet? What's going on? It's tricky. It's tricky because it's a very complex system, and carbon can be sucked in, and Mm -hmm. it can be released very easily by tillage practices. Well, Trent, you've been you've been listening to all of this. What what else can you add to the conversation here about the the kinds of adaptations and, and mitigation strategies that we need right now? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Andy's comment was 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 really on where where you know it was the solutions are are here uh, most most of them at least, and and as far as adaptation and mitigation, um, and and so it's just a matter of of implementing them at at a, at a large enough scale. Um, that it can really make a huge difference to um, you know for the region, like the Midwest region or the state of Illinois, um, and so I think that's really the challenge moving forward. And and unfortunately, given the IPCC's um, latest report, we don't have that much time. So I think I think it is a pressing issue to really. Um, you know, broaden this out to implement a lot of these solutions uh, that Liz and Andy mentioned at a much larger scale. Liz, can you go more into policies you think are, are needed to to support farmers as they transition to these more sustainable growing practices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, there's a couple. I mean, one is uh, it's expensive and it's really difficult for mm-hmm. farmers to transition to more sustainable or regenerative practices, but we do have what are called working lands conservation programs that provide farmers with the funding and the technical support that they need. 
And one great thing that just happened is the recent Inflation Reduction Act included $20 billion for those working lands programs as part of the administration's hmm. commitment to address climate. So we're going to get a huge boost in those um, in, in those programs. And I'm also really excited that Illinois' Department of Agriculture is bringing yeah. on 20 new conservation planners to actually work with farmers. So so that's really great. So are we, are we doing a good job getting the word out that that exists, that help those programs? Um, well, it, no. <laughs> we definitely need to do a lot more. Um, this is going to be, you know, uh, this is going to be the first really like influx of of big money to these programs in a really long time. And so, um, you know, the, and they've been overprescribed. So for for a long time, too many farmers have been denied funding. So mm-hmm. they've been trying to do the right thing, but the funding hasn't been there. So we're really in, I think, an important moment where the programs could actually be, begin to meet the need that's on the ground from farmers. Um, yeah. The other opportunity that's on the horizon that's super important is the 2023 Farm Bill that comes up every five years for reauthorization. And it's really a chance to shift government support away from like monoculture operations and industrialized practices and toward more regenerative and local forms of agriculture. That's an opportunity to increase conservation funding and revise programs so that federal funds aren't supporting practices that increase emissions and pollution. And then, um, you know, big, big picture is the Biden administration has committed to break up corporate consolidation of processing in the, in the food system um, through executive order last year. And that, um, is really essential to rebuild local and regional food processing that makes us right. more food secure so we don't have to rely on states like California for all our food. Well, just a couple seconds here, Andy. I wonder what you're most heartened by right now. Just the recognition from the government and from consumers and everyone, like we have to deal with this now. And we were joking the other day, I said, the farm bill gets written once every five years. I think it's time to make that either biannually or annually yeah. because we are in a huge amount of change right now. We are being, as a human species, thrust through an evolutionary bottleneck. And this is like make or break. The next couple of years is our time. And so it is exciting, yeah. but it is a little bit of a white knuckle ride <laughs> until all the pieces are in place. Yeah. We'll have to leave it there for now. That's Andy Hazard of Hazard Free Grain Farm near Rockford, Trent Ford, state climatologist, and Liz Moran-Stelk, executive director of Illinois Stewardship Alliance. Thank you all.